In your Bible, so 19. Psalm 119, and we are in verses 17 to 24 this morning. Psalm 119, verse 17. There the word of Christ says this. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking, just as the prophet did so many years ago, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, we know that your word is a spiritual book written for a spiritual people. And that, Lord, if you do not illuminate us, Lord, if your light does not shine upon us, that we cannot understand your word, Lord, for our salvation nor for our sanctification. And so, Father, we pray that today you would, Lord, give to us the faith that we need, Lord, that your spirit would be with us as our teacher and guide, that, Lord, he would open our eyes so that we might behold these wonderful things from your law. So, Lord, teach us today from your word, and may we be quick to obey. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember that we are continuing the study of Psalm 119, which is a prayer to God from a righteous man, right? From a man uh, who is a believer. These are not the prayers of an unbeliever, but of a Christian, right? Of a man of God who has a changed heart by the miracle of regeneration, right? He has been born again by the Spirit, and the psalm reflects his longing and his desire to know God, the longing that comes from the new heart, to know God through his word. And this is why Psalm 119 must be understood from the perspective of a true Christian. No unbeliever, right? No godless man who's living for himself and for his own selfish pleasures thinks and prays this way. He doesn't have these kinds of desires. The unconverted man lives for the passions of the flesh, but the one with a new heart He lives for God. His greatest desire is to know God through his word. And this is what must be true of all of us. This is a test for us to determine whether or not we are converted, whether or not we are in the faith or not. Do we have these desires? Is this psalm reflective of our own life, of our own heart, and of our own desires to know God through his word? So all true Christians will, in some measure, have these same longings that are expressed here in the psalm. So may that be true of us, and may this be our prayer to know God through his word. Let's pick up in verse 17. Psalm 119, verse 17. It says, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Here the prophet says, Deal bountifully with your servant. He's crying out for God to be gracious to him. Right? He knows and understands 
that apart from God, apart from the mercy of God, apart from the goodness of God, he has absolutely nothing. Right? Every good thing must come from God. As it says in Psalm 16, verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Here he is recognizing that God is the fount. He is the source of all goodness. That if he, the prophet, is going to be full spiritually, if he's going to experience the bounty of God's goodness, then God must give it to him. And God must give it to him graciously. And that's why he's asking God. He's not demanding this as some entitled brat, but he's asking God, begging God, pleading with God to come and to give to him his bounty. Deal bountifully with your servant. Pour out your goodness upon my life. This is what it says in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verses 17 and 18. This is what the apostle teaches us as well. James 1, 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures, right? This is the way it works. This is the reality. Every good and perfect gift resides with God. Every good gift originates with God. We have nothing on our own, no good thing on our own that comes from in. It must come from God. So if we want the bounty of God's goodness, then we have to ask him. We have to come to God and seek it from him. We have to knock on his door and plead with him to give to us what we do not have and to give to us what we can never have apart from his grace and apart from his mercy. As it says, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, What do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What good thing, what spiritual thing, what grace, what virtue is in us? What act of righteousness, what measure of faith, right? What is in us that has not come from God? What good thing is in us that did not come from God? This is what the prophet recognizes, and this is why he's asking God, deal bountifully with your servant. Also notice in this, he wants the bounty of God. He doesn't want meager rations. He doesn't want a little bit of grace. He wants God to deal bountifully with him. He wants a bounty of the goodness of God. And this is the way that we ought to be as well as Christians, to desire a full measure of the goodness of God. Right? Whatever comes from God... Whatever it is that we desire from him, we should desire to have a great supply of those things. Whether that be wisdom, whether that be strength, whether that be love or righteousness or power, faith, self-control, whatever it is. Whatever grace, whatever virtue, whatever fruit of the Spirit that is produced in the child of God, we should want to have it more and more and more. For God to give it to us in a bountiful way, a bountiful supply of the goodness and grace of God. Not as some people. There are some people who want just enough faith to get to heaven, but not so much that it will change their life. They want just a little bit of righteousness so that they don't commit some scandalous sin, but they don't want so much that they can't have a good time in this present life. This is how many people think in regards to the Christian life. 
what is the bare minimum that I can have to get to heaven one day? But is that the way that we should think? Is this the mind of a true Christian? This isn't the mind of the prophet here. He wants the bounty of God. He wants it more and more. He wants it to overflow. He wants his cup to overflow, as we read this morning from Psalm 23. He wants greater faith, greater righteousness, more strength, more wisdom, more love, more self-control. He wants God to deal with him in this bountiful way, and this is the way that God treats his children. This is characteristic of God. God is not a stingy God. He is not one who gives miserly to his children, but rather he gives bountifully to those whom he loves. It says in James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously. He gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God gives generously, bountifully, graciously. This is the way that God pours out his goodness on his children. Wasn't this seen in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve? God gave them a blessed existence, a bountiful existence. He told them, from every tree, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. From any tree, you may eat freely, as you please, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only one tree was forbidden from them, but the rest of the trees were open for them to eat freely from. God didn't say, you may eat of one tree, and then the rest of them are forbidden for you. But rather, he said, you may eat freely of all of the trees except for this one. This is the way that God is. He is gracious. He is good. And those whom he loves, he pours his blessings out. That's what the prophet wants, and this is what we should want as well. Also notice in verse 17, he calls himself the servant of God. Deal bountifully with your servant, not with your equal, not with your peer, with your servant. This shows his humility, his humility, his understanding that he is not co-equal with God. He is not a God. He is not a peer with God. He's not demanding these things from the Lord. Rather, he is the servant of God who recognizes that he is no longer his own ruler. He's not sitting on the throne of his life anymore. He is not the master of his life, but rather Jesus Christ is his master and he is the servant of the Lord. And this is why he wants God to deal bountifully with him. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. He knows that he is a servant of Christ. And while he lives, he wants to live a life pleasing to Christ as a good, faithful, wise servant. But he knows he can't do this on his own. He can't do this on his own strength, but only if God deals graciously with him. God must give him what he needs to live a godly life to live a life pleasing to Christ. That's what he wants. I want to please Christ. I want to live and keep your word, but for me to live and keep your word, God, I need your grace and mercy. So give to me what I need so that I can do your will. This is the way that we ought to be as well. As it says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. And it says in Galatians chapter 2, that we've been crucified with Christ. 
He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, 20 to 21. This is how we should be. We want to live as Christ. But to live as Christ, we need the grace of God. So we go to God and we ask him to give to us what we so desperately need. Verse 18, Psalm 119, verse 18. says, open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Here we see that we cannot and we will not understand anything for our salvation, for our sanctification, apart from God opening our eyes, both at our conversion and the continuation of our Christian life, from conversion to death, we will never understand any truth, any word of God, unless God illuminates us, unless God gives us the interpretation. God must open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from his law. Right? And he's saying this as a Christian. He's not saying this as an unbeliever, though it is true that God must open the eyes of unbelievers. But even as Christians, though our eyes have been opened, we need God to continue opening them. We need God to continue to give us light and to illuminate us so that we can see more and more and more clearly. God must shed his light into our hearts and into our mind so that we can see wonderful things from the law of God. The natural man cannot do this. The natural, carnal, fleshly man. He does not have the ability, the spiritual capacity, to behold wonderful things from the law of God. Now, he might be able to understand some things conceptually here or there. right? He can understand maybe a concept or two, but he doesn't love those things. He does not love the truth so as to be saved. He does not believe those truths. He does not see them as wonderful, but rather for the natural man, they are odious to him. He doesn't like them. He finds them distasteful, and he is not pleased with the wonderful word of God. Also, even in a converted man, we still have the flesh. And the flesh finds the law of God to be distasteful. The flesh kicks against the law of God. It hates the law of God. It does not see the law of God as wonderful. But that's not what he wants. He wants his eyes to be open so that the law of God becomes wonderful to him, something that he desires, that he delights in, that is good and pleasing in his sight. And this is why he's praying for God to open his eyes. Only when God opens the eyes, only when he removes our spiritual blindness, are we able to clearly see into the law of God? And then when the eyes are opened, then the man sees wonderful things from the law of God. Then the man is excited about the word of God because the objects he sees in the word of God become beautiful to him. They become something that are wonderful to him, something that excites him and causes him great joy and delight. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2 teaches more expansively this truth that the prophet is proclaiming here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, how it is that the natural man does not have the ability to even understand the things of the Spirit of God. This is also why Jesus says in John chapter 3 that unless one is born 
of the Spirit, of water and the Spirit. And unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born of the Spirit to see the kingdom of God. In the natural man, in our natural fleshly carnal state, we don't have the ability to enter or to see the kingdom of God without the help of the Spirit. The Spirit must open our eyes. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1 says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood... They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, in which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There he says that we have to be taught by the Spirit. The Spirit must teach us. And that we believers, right, the church, they don't have the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. But the natural man doesn't accept these things. They're foolish to him. He can't understand them because they have to be appraised or understood spiritually by the Spirit of God, and he does not have that capacity. The spiritual man, by the Spirit of God, sees wonderful spiritual truths in the spiritual law of the Lord. This is the way it works. We remember Romans 8.14 says, The law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. The Word of God is a spiritual book that can only be understood by a spiritual people. Amen. This is what happens for the child of God. He hears, he reads, he studies, he meditates, he memorizes the Word of God. And as he does... God opens his eyes more and more and more so that he grows in his understanding. He gains greater clarity, greater conviction regarding the word of God. He sees more and more how wonderful God's word is, how majestic its content is, how good is its righteousness. And it's wonderful to him more so than any other book in the world. 
He loves the Word of God, and he gets delight in the Word of God. Isn't this the way it happens? When there's some truth that we're struggling to understand, and then we get clarity on those things, it all comes together in our mind, isn't it delightful for us to understand? We're excited about those things. We want to talk to other people about those things. Or we're reading the Bible, and some truth sticks out to us. It's on our mind. It's on our lips. We want to talk to people about it. It excites us whenever we come to understand and to know the will of God. This is how it is for the believer, but not for the unbeliever. The unbeliever is not like this. He finds the Bible dull. It's boring. It's tedious. It's tiresome, right? It is toilsome labor for him to read the Bible, to have to sit and hear a sermon where the pastor's not up there making a buffoon of himself, telling stories and jokes and doing those kinds of things. To hear one that's actually explaining the word of God, he can't tolerate those things because it is a toilsome labor for him to hear the word of God. He gets nothing out of it. He doesn't see anything wonderful in the word of God. And even if he understands some things here and there, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like what he's hearing. He's constantly seeking to poke holes in the Bible to undermine and contradict what the Word of God says. The Christian isn't like this. Even if he doesn't understand, he wants to know. He wants to know. He wants to find out, what does it mean? What does this mean? Because I want to obey it. I want to understand it. I want to believe it. I want to do what it says. He finds wondrous things in the law of God as he comes to understand more and more. He wants greater understanding of the truths of Scripture. And these things excite him. The true, simple, plain interpretation of Scripture. Not some newfangled, half-brained, crazy, off-the-wall interpretation. There are those kinds of ecstatic people out there who, when they hear some newfangled interpretation, something that no one's ever said before, they get real excited about it because no one's ever said this before. We shouldn't be like that. We want to know the true interpretation, the right interpretation, and that's what excites us. The simple clear teaching of the Bible. Verse 19. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. Here he says, I am a stranger in the earth. He means this in terms of spiritual citizenship. The child of God is a stranger, a sojourner, an alien on the earth. Though he's born on the earth, though he resides on the earth his entire life, In terms of his spiritual citizenship, he does not belong here, but rather the child of God belongs where? In heaven, right? In heaven with God. And in that way, he is a stranger in the earth. In terms of his citizenship, he belongs with God in heaven. This is what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12, and we notice here that the apostle in the New Testament is teaching the identical same truth as the prophet in the Old Testament. The prophet being a thousand years before Christ, the apostle being after the death and resurrection of Christ, yet both of them are teaching the same truths. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There, he calls them, the Christians, aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. That they don't belong on the earth. They are aliens in this present world. And the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, he says. This is where we belong. We belong in heaven. That's where our true citizenship lies. And we are eagerly waiting for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are strangers in the earth, as the prophet says here. I am a stranger in the earth. And this is true of us because in a sense, God is a stranger in the earth as well. Right? Not meaning that God doesn't own the earth or that God did not create the earth. Right? The earth belongs to the Lord. But in terms of God's acceptance, in terms of God's worship, in terms of men and the way they fear God and respond to God, in, among sinful men, God is a stranger because they don't know him. They do not serve him. They don't want to know him, even though he has revealed himself to them. The Lord is not their God, and they are not his people. And in this way, God is a stranger. God is a sojourner. God is an alien to sinful, fallen man. Let's see this. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2. Notice, arrogant Pharaoh. Exodus 5, verse 1. says, And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Notice there. Now, is God the God of Pharaoh in, in the true sense, in the ultimate sense? Yes, he is his creator. And who is Pharaoh going to answer to on the day of judgment? To the Lord. So in the true ultimate sense, the Lord is his creator and the Lord is the only God and Pharaoh's gods are false gods. But does Pharaoh know God? No, he doesn't know him. And that's why he says, who is the Lord? I don't know who you're talking about. Why should I obey your God? Why should I obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. So in this sense, the Lord is a stranger to Pharaoh. Pharaoh does not know him. Also, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 21. Notice what the men of Athens say whenever the apostle Paul is preaching to them Jesus Christ. Acts 17, verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idol babbler wish to say? Others he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus 
and saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Now here, in the true and ultimate sense, Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. And his dominion is everlasting, and it extends even over the city of Athens. He is their God, whether they recognize it or not. But notice, they say that the Apostle Paul, who's preaching Jesus and the resurrection, is proclaiming strange deities to us, things that we have never heard, because they don't worship the Lord. They worship their idols. So in this sense, God is a stranger on the earth, in that the wicked do not worship him, they do not know him, they do not serve him. He is a strange foreign deity to them. This is the case with the godless, with the nations, right? The whole world lies under the power of the evil one, but not with the righteous. With the believers, God is our God and we are his people. And so spiritually speaking, we are strangers with God on this earth. Just as the Lord is a stranger, just as he is considered a foreign deity, so his people are strange people. They are a foreign people in terms that they do not belong spiritually on this earth that is under the power of the evil one, but rather, spiritually speaking, they belong in heaven with God. As it says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are of God, but the world, the whole world, lies under the power of the evil one. And because of this, we are strangers and aliens on the earth. This is why the prophet says, I am a stranger on the earth. I am not like the people of this world. They worship false gods, he says. They are under the power of the devil. They are slaves to sin. But I'm not like that. I'm not like these people. Instead, the prophet is saying, I worship the true and living God. I don't belong to the devil anymore. I am a slave of righteousness, not a slave of sin. And this is how it is for all true believers. In this way, the believer does not belong in this present world as it currently is made up. Because currently, it is still under the power of the evil one. And this is the testimony of all of the righteous of all ages. First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 14 and 15, teaches this. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14 and 15. This is the prophet David. It says, But who am I and who are my people? that we should be able to offer as generously as this. For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you, and tenants, as all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. There, the prophet says, we are sojourners before you. Before you, and he means that, in the spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense, he is a sojourner. Also in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, 
This is the testimony concerning the saints in the Old Testament of the patriarchs. They were strangers and aliens, sojourners on this earth, not merely physically, but ultimately spiritually. This is how they were strangers and aliens, because they were looking for a heavenly city, not an earthly city. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So there, the patriarchs were not looking for an earthly city. They were not looking for some land on earth, a physical piece of land to call their own. If that was the case, then all they needed to do is go where? Go back from where they came from. They already had a home. Go back there and live among your family and among the people that you've known for many years. But what kind of a country were they looking for? A heavenly one. A heavenly city. They were strangers in this way. And this is why in Psalm 39 verse 12, David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. David proclaims that he is a stranger with God on the earth. Now, in terms of where David grew up, where he was born, where he lived, he was not a stranger, right? He was born in the land of Israel. And Israel had been in that land for 400 years, right, when David was born. So in terms of them being born in a land, being natives to that land, being citizens of that land, they had been there for 400 years. That's longer than any of us have been in America. But do we consider ourselves strangers in America? Or do we not consider this to be our home country? This is where we're from. We're citizens of this country. So in that sense, we're not strangers in terms of our natural citizenship. And this would have been the case with David as well. 400 years, his family, his ancestors had lived in the land of Israel, yet he's still saying that I am a stranger on the earth with you. So in what way was David a stranger? In the sense of spiritual, in the sense of his spiritual heritage, he was a stranger in the earth. And this is true of all of God's people from Adam to the end of the world. We are strangers and exiles on the earth. We belong to God while the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And this is why he's saying, because I am a stranger in the earth, then Lord, do not hide your commandments from me. My citizenship is in heaven. I belong to God. You are my God and I am your child and I want to obey you. Right? Because I am a stranger, because I belong to you, Lord, because you are my God and not the false gods of the nations, then I want my life to conform to you, to your will, to your commandments. I don't want to be like the people of the world. I don't want to adopt their values. I don't want to have their manner of life. 
I don't want to live in sin the way that they live in sin, but I want my life to be consistent with your holy will. And your holy will is found in your commandments. So don't hide them from me. Open them up to me that I might understand them so that I can walk in the ways of the Lord. This is as it says in Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18. This is what the Lord is talking about when he's warning Israel to not be like the Egyptians from where they came, nor be like the Canaanites to where they are going, but rather that they should be and listen to God's will. Leviticus 18.1 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So there, right? If God is our God, then who should we obey? Right? Isn't that the way it works? Right? Where has it ever been heard or seen that a people don't serve and worship and obey their God? This is the way it should be. Well, if God is our God, then whose judgments, whose commandments, whose statutes should we follow? We should follow His. I am a stranger in the earth, so do not hide your commandments from me. Open them up to me, reveal them to me, so that I can obey your will. This is what the prophet says. Psalm 119, verse 20. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all time. Now, who is thinking and praying like this? Right? Who in this godless generation in which we live is thinking in these terms, saying to God, my soul is crushed because I'm longing for your ordinances at all times. Here, he is genuine. He is sincere. He has great longing for the Lord through his ordinances. And he doesn't say some of the time, but all the time. All the time, this is what is true of me. This is how we should be as Christians, to have an eager, genuine craving for God's word all the time. Like a newborn baby craves milk, so we Christians, like newborn babes, should crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Like newborn babes crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. This is what he is like. Soul is crushed with longing for your ordinances at all times. This is the way that we should be. Verse 21. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Here, the arrogant, the cursed, they will be rebuked by God because they wander from the commandments of God. Now, the prophet is bringing this to our attention, not simply so that we can know something that is true about the wicked, but so that we would not join in with them, so that we would not walk hand in hand with them. They wander from the commandments of God, but we should not wander from the commandments of God, but rather we ought to walk in the pathway of his commandments. So when the wicked tempt us, and they're going to, they're going to tempt us, they're going to want us to join them, to come with them, 
to wander away from the commandments of God. They'll, they'll say, well, you don't have to take it that serious. And that's in the Old Testament, after all. You don't want to be a legalist, do you? No, we're all under liberty, and it's free. And, and God, he's not like that. He loves us just the way that we are. No, we can do these things. We can indulge in these things. So I want you to come, and you can come and commit these sins with me. Though they won't use the word sin. It's a four-letter word today. No one uses that word. Right? We can go and have a good time. That's what they'll do. But they're wandering from the commandments of God. When they tempt us to do that, what do we have to say? We have to say, no, no, I can't do those things because those who wander from God's commandments are arrogant, they are cursed, and they will be rebuked by the Lord. They will come under the judgment of God. And if we join in with them, what's going to happen to us? Then we're arrogant, we are cursed, and we will be rebuked as well. Here, first he calls them arrogant. They're arrogant people. Arrogant because when a man wanders from the commandments of God, it's because he thinks he's wiser than God. He has a better way than God. He has a better path than God. He knows better than the Lord how to achieve and obtain the life of blessing. Why would I listen to the Lord? Isn't that what arrogant Pharaoh said? Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And this is what people do today. They may not say it that explicitly, but it's what they mean. Why should I listen to the Lord when I can consult my own mind, when I can consult my own wisdom? When I know what's right, I know what's best, I'll just listen to myself and do what is right in my own eyes. This is very arrogant for people to think and to behave this way. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 6, in verse 16, that the Lord is telling us, the Lord is testifying to us, what is the good way? What is the way that we should walk in? Jeremiah 6, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, Listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not listen. This is the arrogant man. The Lord says, this is the good way. This is the way of blessing. This is where you will find rest for your souls. The Lord is calling us and saying, it is the hard and narrow way that leads to life. This is the pathway to receive the blessing of the Lord. These are the straight ways of the Lord. But the arrogant says, I know better than you. I have a better way. I know better than the Lord. I'm not going to walk in the way of the Lord. The broad and easy path, that is the pathway for me. I know how to find rest for my soul. I know how to determine what is good and right and true. I have more wisdom and more understanding than God. Why would I listen to the Lord when I can consult my own mind and my own wisdom, seeing that I am such a wise and knowledgeable man? This is what people do. This is demonic earthly, carnal, human wisdom. The wisdom of this world. It originates on this earth. They believe themselves wiser than God. And there are many, many people who believe this. Even many people who claim to be Christians who believe this, whether they will say it explicitly or not. Many people believe that they are wiser than God. It says this, 
1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Do not be deceived. If you think that you're wise and you're wise in this present age, you're wise in this present world, you're actually not very wise at all. You rather, you need to become a fool. You need to become a fool in this present age in order to be wise in the sight of God. And because this man trusts in his own wisdom instead of trusting in the Lord, then he also is cursed. He's under the curse of God. Those who wander from God's commandments, they are under God's curse. His judgment, both in this life and also in the life to come. There is the way that seems right to the man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, verse 12. It seems right in the moment. It seems wise. It seems good in the moment. But where does it end in? It ends in death and destruction. And this is what our Lord Jesus Christ said. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John three thirty six. When does the wrath of God abide on him? Right now, in this present life. Because he's arrogant, he's under the curse of God. The wrath of God is on him, and he'll experience that wrath both in this life and then ultimately in the life to come. Verse 22, Psalm 119, 22. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Here, if we observe the testimonies of God, not everyone is going to congratulate us. Not everyone is going to say, this is wonderful. We're not going to be praised by all men. But instead, here, because he's walking in the ways of the Lord, he is receiving reproach and contempt. God's enemies hate God's people because they observe God's testimonies. The righteousness of the righteous is a contrast to the evil deeds of the wicked. And it is a reminder to them that there is a God in heaven and that he is a holy and a just God and that there is a day of judgment coming for their sin. And they want to completely obliterate any knowledge of the day of judgment. And this is why they treat with hatred, reproach, with contempt, the people of God when they are living a godly life. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is why. The righteous observe God's testimonies. They walk in the pathway of his commandments instead of joining in with the wicked in immorality, in wicked deeds. And when they see this, they will malign the people of God because they have contempt and reproach for them. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 5. You see how there's such agreement between the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's, it's all over the place. Almost as if it's the same religion. As if it's the same God as if it's the same way of salvation and the same way to live a godly life before the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 says, The time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here, they are surprised that you don't run with them. They're running to go commit dissipation, an excess of dissipation, to go to their drinking parties, their carousing, the lust, their drunkenness, their idolatries, all of the sin, they're drinking it up, they love it, they're running toward it, they're telling you, why don't you come and join with us? We're going to go have a great time. And then the Christian says what? He says, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to commit idolatry. I don't want to get drunk with you. I don't want to commit immorality with you. No, I'm not going to go do those things. And then immediately, what do they do? They don't say, well, we respect your decision. We respect and we understand that you want to live a godly life, and we think that that's great. They don't do that at all. Instead, they malign you. They mock you. They ridicule you. They treat you with reproach and contempt. Oh, you just think you're better than us. right? You think you're so great. You think that you're so holy and righteous. And they will begin to treat with contempt, with malignment, those who do these things. They will insult you and they will persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Matthew 5 verse 11. And when this happens, we can't take matters into our own hands. We don't repay evil for evil. We don't say, okay, well, I'm going to punch this guy in the face. No, we can't do those things. We have to do what is honorable in the sight of God. And here, what does he do? He cries out to God. He prays for God to take away reproach and contempt from me. Deliver me from the hands of the wicked. We plead for justice from God. And sometimes God will grant that now in this present life. Such was the case when God delivered David from the hands of Saul or when God delivered Mordecai from the contempt of Haman. But for certain, God will do it on the day of judgment, when he will deliver us from all of our enemies. As we saw in Psalm 37, verse 34, that when the wicked are cut off, you will see it. He will give justice to his holy ones, to his elect on the day of judgment. Verse 23, Psalm 119, 23. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Even in the face of severe persecution, he will continue to meditate on God's statutes and live according to the Lord's commandments. Even when princes are the ones that are sitting and talking against me, ruling authorities, enacting laws and policies that are contrary to the law of God that are intended to hurt and to harm the people of God. Plotting, planning, scheming, using the resources of the government, which should be allotted to punish evildoers and to reward the righteous, they use these same things to persecute the righteous and to promote evil in the land. And when that happens, it's a very dire situation for the people of God. Right? Whenever you've got some Hitler-esque, president standing in front of the, in Philadelphia in front of the place where the constitution was drawn up making these types of statements about the people of God about those who don't agree with him saying horrible things in that way it is a great temptation for us to forsake the Lord to turn aside from the path to follow the multitude in doing evil this is what we will be tempted to do because we don't want to be persecuted by the ruling authorities 
but that's not what the prophet is doing. He's praying for God to deliver him. And even when the princes, even when the ruling authorities are plotting evil against him, he's going to continue living a godly life. We should be like Daniel. When the princes plotted against Daniel, he continued doing the will of God. Their evil schemes did not cause him to alter what he was doing. He was living a godly life. He was praying to his God. Why should he quit praying to God because of these evil people? He didn't do that. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, and God delivered him, even though his life was put in grave jeopardy. He continued entrusting himself to the Lord. Verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. The prophet, in the midst of his suffering, flees to the word of God for comfort. Though he has reproach, though he has contempt, though princes are sitting and talking against him, right? these are very unfavorable circumstances that would cause one to be filled with sorrow, to be downcast, yet he finds an oasis of delight in the word of God. That's where he goes to get his joy and his delight. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my afflictions. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Psalm 119, 92 and 93. And what about Jeremiah 15, 15? Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Right? Isn't this the way it works? Isn't this our own experience? especially in times of hardship and sorrow, when we're overwhelmed by these circumstances, we're fearful, we're filled with trepidation, with anxiety, but then you go to the Word of God, you read the Word of God, and your countenance is lifted up. We find it to be a pleasant and a delightful place. That's why we should go to the Word of God during these times. Also notice, he says at the end, God's testimonies are his counselors. He's not seeking the counsel of the ungodly. He's not consulting the so-called experts on this and that. He's going to God. He's going to God, to God's word, to establish his steps and to formulate his values. This is where he goes for counsel. So that God's word is what he is using to establish his steps in this present life. Now this shows first his humility. Don't we have to be humble in order to seek counsel? Don't we have to see and understand that we don't know everything, that we need someone outside of us to advise us, to give us counsel? Now many believe that they are experts in every field in the world. In every situation, they need consult no one except their own mind. But the righteous man is a humble man. He recognizes that he knows nothing, that he needs wisdom, he needs counsel, and it has to come from outside of him. And so he goes to God for God to be his counselor. Proverbs chapter 9, this is what wisdom says. Wisdom cries out to the simple. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1 says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She also has set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the top of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive 
Let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat my food, and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live, and proceed in the way of understanding. She cries out to the naive, to the one who lacks understanding. And this is what we have to recognize about ourselves. We are naive, we lack understanding apart from God. And if we are going to have wisdom and live a life of understanding, we have to go to someone other than ourselves in order to get that. And who is the best counselor? The Lord God himself. God's word is his counselor. That is where he's going. Also, this shows his faith, his fear of the Lord. He understands both that he needs counsel and he understands that God is the best counselor. He's not consulting the wisdom of man. He's not going to the so-called wise men of this world, the so-called experts of this world, the so-called counselors of this world. Aren't there many counselors today? We have a whole class, a cast of professional counselors, and 99.9% of what they say is utterly worthless and useless for anything at all. And yet, what do people do? They flee to these people. They even give them money in order for them to tell them what they need to do. They could come to me for free. I wouldn't charge them anything. But they don't want to know what the Bible says. This is the way people are. And this is why so many people fail. Either they seek no counsel at all, or if they do look for counsel, they look for it in bad counselors. They go to foolish counselors who are going to tell them exactly what they want to hear. This is what sinful men do. They surround themselves with counselors who tell them exactly what they want to hear, who will say to them, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They don't want someone who's going to confront their sin. They don't want someone who's going to rebuke them, who's going to call them to repent, who's going to press them on matters of sin. They just want someone to tell them that they're great, they're wonderful, everything that they do is good, and it's all going to be all right, and they're all going to make it to heaven one day. But those aren't the counselors that we should want. If the counselor is always tickling our ears and telling us what we want to hear and never confronts sin, he is worthless. And if he doesn't open a Bible, he is so worthless and arrogant because he thinks that he himself can give you counsel apart from the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside into myths. They will accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own sinful desires who are going to tell them exactly what they want. People want false counselors because they want false hope. They want to know that they have God's blessing without repentance. And there is always going to be a full supply of bad counselors, self-proclaimed so-called experts with PhDs in prestigious titles telling us what we should believe, telling us how we should live, telling us what values we should adopt. And many people will fall to their ruin and destruction because they listen to the worldly wise men of this age. And we shouldn't do that. 
Isn't this what happened with Rehoboam in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 6 to 11? He listened to foolish counsel. Whenever he sought the counsel, the wise men told him to be gracious, to be kind, to treat the people in a loving and a gentle way. But it was the young foolish man who told him to be severe. And who did he listen to? He listened to the foolish counselors and he took a pathway of severity and what happened to his kingdom? It was ripped in half. It was ripped apart. We shouldn't be like this. But rather, the testimonies of the Lord should be our counselors. Right? When I need to know what to do in a certain situation, right? when I need to know how to think about something that's happening in the world, in the nation, in my life, when I need to know what to believe about some specific doctrine, I should consult the Word of God. And I should consult those counselors who are going to point me to the Word of God and tell me what the Word of God says. Right? If you go to a person for counsel and they do not open the Bible and read from the Bible, run away from them. Don't listen to them. They are worthless. If someone comes to you for counsel and you don't open the Bible, you are sinning against God. Open the Bible and show them what the Bible says. This is what the prophet is saying. The word is my counselor. Your ordinances, they are my counselors. Any person, no matter who it is, no matter how many degrees, no matter how much prestige he possesses, who gives counsel that contradicts the word of God, he is a bad counselor. And we should not listen to him. But God, he is a good counselor. He is the best counselor because God is the one who possesses all wisdom. And he has my good in his mind, my good in his glory. And his counsel is always true and it is always righteous and it is always good. What a blessing for us to have God as our own personal counselor to tell us how we should live in this present life as the one to guide and direct us in our life. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs 15, 22. And isn't it a blessing that I can have the prophet Moses as my counselor? That I can have the prophet David, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah? That I can have the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter? That I can go to them for counsel in this present life? And then ultimately, who am I going to when I consult the prophets and the apostles? I'm consulting the Spirit of Christ within them who led them to write such holy words from God. This is how we should be. As it says in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19 says, When they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists, who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. To the law and to the testimony. Why are you consulting mediums? Why are you going to spiritists? Why are you going to these people who chirp and mutter instead of going to God? 
to the law and to the testimony. Shouldn't we consult our God? Shouldn't we listen to the voice of God? Why would we listen to whisperers and mutterers of false counsel when we can go to the fount and source of all wisdom? Why would we listen to those who undermine the word of God when we can go to God himself? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This is what we should do. Consult God. Consult his word. And then consult those human teachers who are going to point us and explain to us what the word of God means, who are going to open the word of God to us. And when we do this, there is safety. There is security. There is the blessing of God. There is life. There is godliness. It's going to be for our good and for our benefit. So away with the wisdom of the world. Away with bad counselors. Let us be those who consult our God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to deal bountifully with us. Lord, we know that we have no good thing apart from you. Lord, we lack wisdom. Lord, we lack understanding in our natural state. Lord, we are naive. We are without any good thing apart from you. But Lord, we want to be wise. Lord, we want to be prudent people. Lord, we want to have understanding and to walk in the proper ways. But Lord, we will never do this unless you teach us, unless you are our guide. And so, Father, we pray that even today you would open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, that you would give to us this great longing and desire, Lord, to know you through your word. Lord, that it would grow within us as a fire that burns hotter and hotter and hotter. Lord, all throughout our life, Lord, that we would desire to know you more and more. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us. Lord, that we would be strangers on the earth. Lord, in that we are those who walk according to your commandments. Lord, we know that this whole world lies under under the power of the evil one. And that the people of this world, Lord, they live according to the passions of their flesh. But, Lord, we don't want that to be true of us. We want to live after your commandments. Lord, just as you are holy, Lord, we want to be holy in all of our conduct as well. And so, Father, we pray that you would cause us and establish us, Lord, to walk in the way that is good and right. Lord, keep us from being arrogant. Lord, from being those who think that we are wiser than you. Lord, guard us from the counsel of arrogant men. Lord, of foolish counselors who do not instruct people in the word of God but who rely on their own wisdom. Lord, may we never listen to them. Lord, may we only listen to the voice of the good shepherd. And Lord, so prove that we are your sheep. For your sheep hear your voice, and they follow you. So Lord, may we follow you in all things. Lord, even if it's contrary to what is popular, Lord, even if it's contrary to what is happening in the world, Lord, even if it's contrary to what is happening in most churches, Lord, we pray that you would give us conviction concerning your word and that if we see it in your word, we would believe it and we would obey it, Lord, no matter what. Lord, even if it leads to reproach and contempt, 
and persecution. Lord, even if the ruling authorities begin to conspire against us, Lord, may we never depart from your word, but rather delight in knowing, Lord, in believing and in obeying every word of Christ. So, Lord, give us this conviction. Give us this confidence in your word. Lord, give us this longing and desire that we so greatly need. And, Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.